G'day mate, Forty here. So I've been listening to some talks by Leah Greenfeld. She's a sociologist and a professor of political science. And uh, she's written a bunch of books on nationalism and I found them quite thought provoking. And so I'm thinking about, I've got extensive background in religion, right? I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, son of a preacher man end up converting to Orthodox Judaism. And I notice in religion that there are some there are some unbalanced people with an unbalanced passion and attachment to, to their religion that's just you know kind of out of whack and what's going on here. And often it's people who are losing in the rest of life. And by embracing their religion one hundred percent they get to be a winner. Right? They they get to uh, really have things going on. Uh, they get to get to be much more impressive. And so joining a religion can shore up someone with a weak sense of self. I converted to Orthodox Judaism. It gave me more clear sense of self in that many of my choices are now determined for me if I live by the, the precepts of Orthodox Judaism. But you see this in all religions. People who are losing in the rest of life, but the very hardcore in their religious commitment. Then I also notice many racial nationalists are also devoid of accomplishments in other areas of life. So if you're an accomplished architect, right, you'll get a sense of feeling good about yourself from your accomplishments in architecture. And if you're an accomplished architect, you probably have other reasons to feel good about yourself. You probably have a family and friends and, and community and education, right? So you have all these different reasons to feel good about yourself. And if you're an accomplished dentist, all right, you're going to feel proud of your dental accomplishments, your education. You probably have a family. You probably have esteem in the community. You probably pay taxes, donate money. So you have all these different reasons to feel good about yourself. So you notice with people who are very passionate about their racial nationalism, whether it's white or black or Mexican, whatever the variety of nationalism, that of racial nationalism that they're very much into, it's 99% of the time is people devoid of accomplishment. So people are looking to shore up their self-esteem and if you don't have any objective reasons to feel good about yourself, then you'll have to make something up. So it can be a story you tell yourself about your religion. You can go join a cult where people celebrate you just for joining their cult. Or you can say, look, you know, what makes me so awesome are these things that you can't see. Right? I don't have any visible accomplishments, but my blood makes me special. My attachment to my soil makes me special. So Leah Greenfield makes this point in the 19th century when you had nationalism rising throughout Europe that uh, nations like France, they had a lot to be proud of, and nations like Spain, they had a lot to be proud of. But there are other nations like Germany and Russia at the time, beginning in the 19th century, they didn't have any objective reasons to be proud of their nation. And so when you don't have any objective reasons to be proud of your nation, then it makes sense to develop, oh, 
I, I'm proud of my, my nation for reasons you can't see. It's because of my blood. It's because of my race. It's because of my attachment to my soil. So when you had these nations such as Germany and Russia that had no objective reason to take pride in their national identity in the early 19th century, that's where blood and soil nationalism developed. And you see that's where blood and soil nationalism still thrives. It's among people with very little accomplishment. Now, some level of attachment to, to blood and to soil makes sense, all right? But if it's the primary thing that you're about, then there's probably some big gaping gap in your soul, in your psyche. Like, what the hell, man? What's going on? So, having a look at the chat, Jim Bowden says, Luke, it's Friday, 10.45 p.m. here in Sydney. I'm still working, mate. What are you doing and streaming? What is the time in L.A.? Yes, coming up on 6 a.m. So, I woke up at 5.06 a.m. and... Last night, I was preparing to do this stream, and I just got sleepy and tired <laughs> at about, at about uh, what, 8.30, 9 p.m. I, I was all planning to do this stream, and then I just got too tired, went to bed, and then I woke up, and it was still on my mind, so I wanted to talk about this. So I, I like the, the, the books on nationalism by Leah Greenfield. She says that nationalism is simply a national consciousness. Right? And you almost can't help developing a national consciousness. So you almost can't help being a nationalist, but you probably won't want to call it nationalist because nationalist got a, a dirty name after World War II. And she also makes the argument that the Nazis were not fascist because fascism is not racial. So fascism is a collective national identity. That's her definition of, of fascism which is interesting. And Nazism, she says, is something completely different from fascism because Nazism was based on uh, racial identity. So, of course, we're going to feel more in common with people who are more similar to us. But if your you know, primary attachment in life is to your race, then there's probably something missing in your life. You're probably lacking coherent sense of family, uh, career, education, community, all these other things that uh, normally make up somebody's self-esteem. Uh, Judas says, haven't slept in 24 hours, once or twice a month, I have an insomnia attack, and I stay, stay awake all night. Not at Minion, because it's very early, and I shouldn't leave the house at such an early hour in case I get attacked. Yeah, it's a much more dangerous life in in LA and New York City and Chicago, San Francisco these days compared to just three years ago. So Leah Greenfield says that England was the first nation to develop a sense of itself and as a result of the War of the Roses, much of the aristocracy got wiped out. So prior to nationalism in, in Christian Europe, people were born into a certain order. You're born into the nobility, you're born into uh, the plebs, right, just the, the regular people, and then there was also a, a priestly class. And your lot in life was, was largely determined for you. Then after the Black Death, right, when a third of Europe died, there was much more need for workers, real wages rose. In England, the War of the Roses wiped out much of the nobility, so all these people who weren't nobles became nobles. And then you had the development of this national consciousness. So until 
16th, 17th century, the word people meant plebs. It meant the scum of the earth, essentially. And you still see this kind of attitude among, say, the, the Ken Browns and the Richard Spencers, that the people, that they're just plebs, that you know, they're, they're just stupid, stupid masses who need to be bossed around and told what to do by an elite. But in England in the 16th century, they developed this sense of nation, right? And people change meaning. So it used to be that a nation was governed by its elites, and only the elites really had dignity. Only the elites really had choice. Only the elites could uh, determine national direction. But in 16th century England, you had the rise of the sense of nation. So people weren't just members of orders. They also, for the first time, felt themselves part of the English nation. And so the English took tremendous pride in their nation. And they began exploring. They became the most powerful nation on earth. And they got filled with a competitive fire. And along with this growing national sense of consciousness, so Leah Greenfield defines nationalism as a sense of consciousness. That you're, that you're aware of your nation, and then when you're aware of your nation, you can't help caring about your nation and taking pride in your nation's accomplishments. So England got fired up by its sense of its nation, became competitive with other nations, started exploring and dominating the globe, becoming more and more fired up, more and more competitive, and more and more accomplished at the same time. And then this had spillover effects, so that the French in the 18th century, they looked at what was going on with England and said, hey, we want some of that. And so nationalism as a term was first used by the French in the 18th century. So nationalism began in the 16th century. It didn't become, though, a term till the 18th century, but you got the, the term nation that began to be used in the 16th century, and the term people began changing meaning from people meaning just the plebs to people meaning all members of a nation and therefore possessing dignity. And once you get that taste of dignity, what comes with it is a sense of freedom and a certain measure of equality. And so this swept through England, and then the English took this with them wherever they went in the world. It rubbed off on the French, and so you would not have had a French Revolution without this growing sense of peoplehood and of nation. Now, the, the English and the French and, and the Spanish developed this nationalism, and they had plenty to be proud of from their history. But when it gets to nations without accomplishment, such as Russia and Germany, then people say, well, we're proud of things that you can't see. We're proud of, of our, our race, what's going on in our blood. And that's where you get the rise of collectivist, ethnic, blood and soil nationalism. And then... When the people of Europe dominated the globe, they brought with them the sense of nationalism, which then rubbed off on the Arab world. So the Arab world was ruled for thousands of years by, by the Turks, who were not Arabs, and no sense of nationalism developed. But in the 20th century, there was this growing pan-Arab sense of nationalism, because it was inherited from their colonialist overseers, the, the English and the French in particular, and so it was the English and the French who, who carved off these different nation states in, in the Arab world, such as Syria and Iraq. And because those, those identities don't really have a lot of historical resonance, uh, the earliest uh, Arab nationalists developed pan-Arab nationalism. And, and the Indians, the Indians were ruled for 
for a long time by Muslims, and they never developed a sense of national identity. But when they were ruled by the English, right, they, they inherited their sense of, of growing nationalism from the English. It got transmitted from the English to the Indians. And so the first time Indians said, hey, we're a people, we're a nation, we deserve to be sovereign, free, and dignified. And so wherever the English and the French went in particular, their sense of nationalism rubbed off on their colonies. Women at Mr. Ford's Shabbos table are always enthralled by Levy's pontifications. <laughs> so I was listening to Tucker Carlson last night. He made, made some interesting points that I don't, th don't think I've seen so clearly. He made the point that the Democrats in their push for gun control, it's, it's really Republicans' guns that they want to take away. Because Democrats, when they run big cities, they're not intent on punishing their voters who are caught possessing guns. So Democrats, at the same time, they are pushing to decrease the number of people who get incarcerated. They are choosing overwhelmingly in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Philadelphia, where you've got these radical left-wing district attorneys. So in Los Angeles, it's Gascon. Uh, they're, by and large, dismissing gun charges against Democratic voters because they don't want to send more Democrats to prison. So they want to take rifles away from Republicans. That's their, their push. At the same time, they want to not prosecute gun crimes by their voters. So I thought that was, that was an interesting perspective that I'm not sure I'd seen so clearly before. Then it had Ben Carson on talking about the, the racial wealth gap in America that apparently... Uh, white and Asian homes have, say, 10 times the wealth of black homes. And Ben Carson knows that, noted that Ghanaian and Nigerian immigrants to America have about the same wealth per household as, as whites. And so I would think that the immigration from, from Africa to the United States, the only people who could, who could successfully pull off something like that would be people with way above average IQs and way, way above average determination and uh, personality, personalities that are, are more effective. So certain personalities are more effective, personalities that are agreeable, conscientious, outgoing, uh, low in neuroticism, and high in openness. Those are personalities that make for more success in the world. So if you combine that with an above average IQ, you should be doing pretty well in life. Bye-bye. <laughs>